What's up, guys? Welcome to our brand new uh, rebranded podcast. So before, we were not releasing new episodes as Please Clap. And as of Sunday, we are now not releasing podcasts under the name Two Officers and a Gentleman. <laughs> Congratulations to Dave. Uh, he has the highlight of the week as being an ordained minister in the Salvation Army, uh, as well as receiving the Commissioner's Award. Uh, for outstanding excellence uh, as a cadet. Do you know what I learned about the Commissioner's Award this week? Did you learn about the Commissioner's Award this week? It is not chosen by the Commissioner. <laughs> it's chosen by the Training College. Huh. Seems like uh, a misnomer then. Seems like a slight misnomer. That's what I thought. Um, but yeah, so congratulations to Dave on Thank you. Uh, being ordained as uh, a new lieutenant and on his way to Keene, New Hampshire. Uh, we have not told Addie where Key, New Hampshire is, and we will not That's for, for the, the entirety of your stay there. But uh, on that, how are you guys? How are you guys doing this week? I'm doing okay. I would say this is now three months to the day since Tom Brady announced he was leaving the Pats in an Instagram post, mm -hmm. which was a real kicker on St. Patrick's Day for those of us from the Boston area with some Irish heritage and the bars were closed. So nobody could go <laughs> yeah. out and get drunk. Unfortunately, and that, also that was like day four of quarantine for me. And it was already starting to feel like a little bit of a grind. So I look back on some of my social media posts from like late March where it's like day nine of quarantine. I'm officially going crazy. And I'm like, Oh, you sweet, naive child. <laughs> oh, sweet summer child. <laughs> It's now been three months, and it's it's definitely starting to you know it's not optimal for my mental well being. But yeah, understood, understood. Um, and Dave, you are where now? I am in Erie, Pennsylvania, visiting uh, my wife's parents. Uh, it's it's very nice because they have not been able to see uh, their grandchildren, my children, uh, since. January. Uh, there was a scheduled visit for almost three weeks in March, which was obviously uh, canceled for mm -hmm. COVID reasons. So it's it's been great to to catch up with them, let them see the kids, let them take care of the kids for a few moments at a time. <laughs> uh, this week feels like it's going by very fast for us, which is which is unfortunate. But that's, that's how vacation goes, right? You, you blink and you're like, oh no, it's Thursday. Yeah. When are you? So start? that would mean tomorrow's Friday. <laughs> that would that would be the case if it's Thursday. That's what Thursday means. Almost. We're almost there. What are you saying? Uh, but, you start next week. Um, next week we go back for for more classes because. Oh, of uh, course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the moves have been delayed uh, across the board, which includes yeah. us, and it gives us an opportunity to have some extra time to prepare. Yeah. Which is a the generous way of saying <laughs> uh we we have to go back and we don't get to move yet yes um, you, you i forgot you have like this interval period of like cooling your heels back at the training school right we we had requested we had said is there any way we can have more time between finding out our appointments and moving to our appointments and it turned out the answer was yes but in the wrong direction <laughs> yeah like well well we can have you move later um, yeah not that anyone chose really to have it go this way, of course. Yeah. Right. We're trying to make lemonade out of lemons. Yes. Uh, at this point. Yes. All right. With so, varying degrees of sweetness in the lemonade. 
so the the sort of the impetus for the podcast tonight is we had this hilarious idea that we came up with over group text of casting early Salvation Army stories and characters uh, under the different genres of film, specifically uh, filmmakers who have a very uh, unique vision for their movies or feel for their movies. So uh, Dave, I believe you took Christopher Nolan. Yes. And Nielsen has Wes Anderson and Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, I, I strayed from the assignment a little bit. I kind of did like a, a potpourri of different directors. Okay, and then mine was the Coen brothers. And generally, I, I really enjoy their sort of dark sense of humor. This is, this is a rather uh, niche podcast, even for us, in yeah. the sense of Salvation Army stories with very movie-centric ideas. So, Dave, why don't you uh, why don't you share yours first, since you are the newest lieutenant, uh, or one of the newest lieutenants of the Salvation Army? Well, uh, put me on the spot. All right. So, what, what I had in mind, my approach was specifically the Salvation Army's 1929 crisis, which is a uh, quick recap. Um, <laughs> second, I was wondering this. I was wondering how much scenes or scene setting or stage setting we were going to do with the actual. Yeah, just yeah. just a little bit. Uh, this this is actually a very sad, uh, uh, tragic moment in the Salvation yeah, Army, which which brought about some things that brought about some good, but. And the second general of the Salvation Army, Bramwell Booth, uh, was in a, a state of uh, physical and mental decline in ways that are not entirely historically clear. But it, it became it became clear to the people around him that he needed to not be general uh, and refused to step down or or name a successor. So the first ever High Council was called uh, to to vote first to remove him and then secondly to elect. A new general, and this was uh, it established the the precedent of electing a general rather than having the general appointed. Uh, very very sad moment, but it really really defined the Salvation Army in ways that ultimately I think led to good. Uh, but a lot of a lot of drama and some great uh, early army characters, almost like second generation army. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, so I, so we have some. Some kind of hanging around from the uh, from the first generation, but we still have uh, kind of some new people coming in saying, you know, this is what the this is what this movement is going to be, not yeah. just a, a Booth dynasty, but you know, it's it's bigger than one family now. So that yeah, led to got, some good things. It served to get us away from the dynastic succession model of organizational yes, leadership, which was which was <laughs> totally definitely good. a concern uh, yeah. that brought this about. And uh, I think Bramwell's health was kind of a um, an impetus, uh, yeah. not an excuse, but it was it was the flashpoint that sort of kicked off the the uh, the, the pulling of the trigger to call a high council. So that's uh, the not so fun part. Now for the what I think is going to be the fun part. Uh, I chose Christopher Nolan, uh, who uh, IMDb describes as having a very cerebral and nonlinear storytelling model, which is just I, I love that phrase. Put it mildly. Yeah. Yeah. To put it that mildly. sounds like, I think that's an entire category of my Netflix represent, uh, recommendation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's like witty buddy comedies, yeah. action and adventure, visually Cerebral, striking sci-fi. Non-linear yeah. slash they're all Christopher Nolan movies. <laughs> uh, 
So I'm, I'm going to go down to the list that I just remembered characters and, and wrote down some names. Uh, and I think our, our parameters are that uh, we want these to be actors that have been featured in more than one of the director's movies with a pass given for when someone is just the lead in an iconic way. So uh, for Samuel Logan Brengel, I chose Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, I can see that. Uh, we'll have him aged up a little bit to be Commissioner Brengel, but I think he has a, a sort of an energy and a, and a likability that they will carry Brengel. Um, Bramwell, I decided, will be played by Christian Bale. <laughs> <laughs> so just right up front, I, I think we're going to assume our audience has some familiarity with the dramatus persona. I so think we, I think we have to. We don't really, if, if you're listening to this podcast, podcast <laughs> if you're listening to this, you don't need to have it explained to you who Samuel Logan Brengle is. Right. There, there are a few names on this list yeah. that if you, if you know anything about the history of the Salvation Army, you, you will know these names. Yeah. So I, I Christian Bale for, for General Bramwell Booth, because there's a, a very, a, a stubbornness that's going to come out in this story. Um, and I think Bale has shown himself to be a very flexible actor, uh, even within roles being aged up or down and, you know, losing tons of weight for a role. I could yeah. see him like really diving into this and having a... Yes. A, of a, really a portrait of like a swaggering leader and heir apparent of the founder, but who's in decline. At this point. Yes. Yeah. He may actually yes. cause himself to become senile. Yes for the role like he's that yes. committed to his uh to his craft we need, we need some dark knight rises yeah we need just uh a, a refusal to quit, which is kind of kind of the, the problem that kicked off this crisis uh evangeline that's that's the role that we gave to uh i don't know how you but i think I th I'm going with that. Um, okay. and, and there is a problem is that there's, there's not of women in multiple movies. Okay. So as, as we go down, when I, huh, we'll, we'll, we'll do that when we come to the, um, or commissioner and later, uh, somewhat opposed to be Cillian Murphy. Did you hear? No, I'm I'm not getting yeah, anything from you, Dave. Sorry. Yeah, your uh -oh. your connection's a little, little choppy right now. How about now? Testing, testing, saying things. Sure, Cillian Murphy. Yeah, Cillian Murphy as uh, as Edward Higgins. Okay. Kind of the so so Bramwell is going to see him as an opponent, but really that's not. He's not a trying to set himself up as an antagonist to Bramwell. Um, yeah, I, I was wondering, it. the casting of Edward Higgins was, was a challenge because, first of all, I don't really know much about the man himself as a historical figure. He seems like kind of a bland cipher. So he intentionally uh, weakened the office of general. Uh, yeah. It was him who kind of solidified that the general does not get to appoint his or her successor and kind of codified the, the high council electoral process. So 
in a way he stepped into the role and and uh, and weakened it and sort of uh, diffused the power somewhat, which is ultimately healthy for an organization. Yeah. Yep. But given that he's kind of usurping the generalship from the booths, I wasn't sure how like Machiavellian he should be portrayed as being. Right. And then, like you said, it's like, how does Bramwell perceive him versus what's yeah. the reality, you know? So that's why I thought that actor for that, because like he can kind of present himself in multiple ways. And yeah, I'm envisioning like different perspectives based on which scene it is. Yeah. I, okay. I, I, for how this movie is going to go. So I'm going to keep going down my list. Uh, for Commissioner Yamamuro, the, the Japanese commissioner who had an active role in this, obviously Ken Watanabe is in <laughs> several of these movies. Yeah. Um, and is, is just apparently an, an awesome figure in history. Um, I'm going to skip this one. Um, I could not remember off the top of my head what um, Bramble's daughter was named. Was it Catherine? Am I remembering that? I believe that's right. Catherine Bramwell Booth. Yes. Yes. So, so she was promoted to commissioner at a very young age and gave, gave the other leaders um, kind of reason to believe that Bramwell was really going to go hard on the, the nepotism and yeah. just, appoint, just appoint his daughter um, based on a relationship, not any kind of talent, which apparently she was very talented and gifted as well, but um, that's how it goes. So I had her as Anne Hathaway, um, mm-hmm. who only appears in Interstellar, as far as Nolan films. So and uh, the, the Dark Knight option, Rises, she totally oh, counts. Right. Oh, never mind then. Anne Hathaway, I forgot. How could I forget Anne Hathaway in The Dark Knight Rises? <laughs> her iconic turn as Catwoman, recognizably Catwoman. <laughs> <sighs> that's a joke, um, <laughs> kind of. So I, I added. That's kind of the main players, as far as I see. 1929 obviously you could go into a host of of hundreds of 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 other commissioners and leaders and family members uh a few others that i wanted to to recognize because i like these actors are um for railton and mainly in flashbacks that's where i had tom hardy going oh wow Um, i like i I like that i like that one just just because tom hardy's an intense guy and and railton was an intense guy yes and and in some some interesting ways not always great but always very interesting, very committed and intense. Uh, Joe the Turk, I wrote down Gary Oldman. <laughs> All right. Yes, I like it. Just because, again, uh, he would commit to that. And then I, yes. I saved, I think, I think my favorite I, I saved for last year. Uh, and that is William Booth, either in flashbacks or appearing as like a forced ghost to bring I, I just want to say, Michael Caine. Yeah. <laughs> As you started that sentence, I was pumping my fist, knowing where it was going. <laughs> That's right. Michael Caine as yeah. as General William Booth, mainly in his as um his older, more more mature, bearded yeah, appearance. Yeah. I I approve of the idea of Michael Caine as a William Booth force ghost. Yes. That that uh that in particular uh speaks to me. Yeah, it's a great uh, idea. I don't want to take up too much of your time because I really want to hear your ideas. But I, I wanted to kind of emphasize the, the Nolan nonlinear aspect. <laughs> yes. So like he's definitely not doing this beginning to end. It's it's jumping back mm-hmm. and forth. Uh, and in the first half of the movie, there's a lot of scenes where people are saying like, the general is dying, but you're not sure which general he's referring to, whether it's Very, yeah. William or Bramwell. So just, just kind of throwing you off the scent. And then in the, the back half of the movie, um, it will solidify a little bit more and, and take more shape and 
proceed almost like a, a legal drama because it really is. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. So there's, there's these different characters and, and start there in a room with, they're shown in a different way, but in, in a Nolan-esque way, it's not like the characters are different depending on their, but it's about upon, it depends on how the other characters see them. Like if Branwell yeah. is, is with Higgins, he sees like the scarecrow Cillian Murphy. Yes. Like yeah, just, yeah. just kind of weaselly and conniving. But if, you know, we got like Brengel, for example, is with him. He sees him as more of like the, um, the Dr. Crane where he's like kind of in control is, I mean, maybe a bad example because he's still pretty obviously evil in Batman Begins, but yeah. just the more in control, like, no, I just want what's, what's best for these people. Right. No, who, I think the, who's telling the story determines uh, his character in that scene. Yes. I think that's a really cool idea. And certainly something that you could picture in a, in a Nolan movie. Um, yeah, and, and, even, and then you get like... Even Nolan, you, could, you can picture uh, both of the... Seeing both of the general's lives line up side by side throughout the entire film. Oh, so yeah. they go through crises yeah. at similar, in similar ways. And then, you know, so, so are their deaths in parallel. Uh, so yeah. in you're you're actually witnessing Branwell's rise and his death at the exact same time, which yeah, I think you, would you see, be really which would be really cool. You see some of like the the family dynamics of William Booth as he's like through force of will bringing the Salvation Army to existence, and then when Branwell is is trying to do these same things, we have these you know the second wave of Salvationists who are saying like, well, you're you're turning this into a family dynasty. Yeah. Even though he's doing exactly the same thing as his father, it's just, you know, we, we have, we have the mission, the Christian mission, if you will, it's, it's up and running. And now to take the next steps, we really have to change how the hierarchy looks. And um, also, obviously this is going to be scored by Hans Zimmer. Yes. Uh, with like yeah. Obama's salvation sense. in like a, yeah. like hyper slowed down format with, with, with like pounding, pulsing drums. Yeah, like the pulsating, like lower uh, strings. Kind lower of strings, yeah, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. You can picture the cello. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, all right, I'll go, I'll go next. Since go for Neil, it. Neil has a hodgepodge at the end, which I yeah. think will be fun to all jump in on that one. All right, so I was thinking about doing the Coen brothers who have a very dark and bleak sense of humor and tackling the Maiden Tribute episode <laughs> of the Salvation <laughs> Army. Guys. Where, uh, and again, for the Maiden Tribute, if you are unfamiliar with it, um, it was a period where uh, the Salvation Army actively tried to raise the age of consent in Britain and shed light on how pronounced and how easy it was for young women to be trapped in a life of prostitution. Yeah. And so the Salvation Army decided to, to tackle this head on. Uh, and if you were just going to do that as a movie with no jokes at all, that is just too bleak. Like you just cannot do that. It would just <laughs> that, be too much. And so actually, I, going the Coen that, brothers feels like yeah. the right people in order yes. to, yes. to tackle this because their sense of humor would match up. So like you're laughing, but you're not enjoying, <laughs> like the laughter just comes as like a brief break yeah. in, like, the, <laughs> in the terror, in the, right, in the terror. Um, <laughs> And they so specialize why, in like dark comedies centered around kidnappings and abductions. There is one in my favorite Coen Brothers uh, movie is Hail Caesar. Uh, that's kind of a rather odd opinion, I think. I think for, as far as most Coen Brothers, yeah, 
movies that's kind of middle of the road. Yeah, I would say you're in the minority with that one. I love it. I, I love Hail Caesar. I just think it's great. Um, all right. So so having that, we do not have like an, a senile losing his mind, Bramwell. We have Bramwell as the chief of staff. Um, really in his prime. This is one of his, his prime. Oh, yeah. Really. Yeah. Absolutely ready. He's, he is ready to take some risks. He just an absolutely fantastic character uh, at this point and uh, made it really made his name and put the army on the map with this with this time. So so this is who I've got. All right, Bramwell Booth. I'm playing. I'm plugging in George Clooney for that one. Oh snap! Okay. Uh, wow. George Clooney has the gravitas to uh, he does to play to play Bramwell uh, Bramwell Booth uh, here. He, I would just um, like would have to, to see. This would be George Clooney in borderline like Oh Brother Where Art Thou mode, just from a facial hair standpoint. Just kind of like that Victorian unkempt, yeah. you know. Yeah. You have to convert his his natural smugness to like more of a self assured confidence, which I believe he could do. He's a great actor. I'm not sure it has to be a whole lot of converting, yeah. but yeah, I think I think a smug uh, Bramwell Booth throughout this actually does well. I for, even from for the what character. little I know of Bramwell Booth between photos and like his own written memoirs, he. He seems to toe the line between like debonair and arrogant. Yeah. A little bit. And guess who else does that? Yeah. George Clooney. I can see it. Yeah. So, uh, so, so we're going to do George Clooney there for, for Bramwell Booth. Yeah. Um, for uh, the other main characters in this are uh, W.T. Stead, who was the editor of the newspaper that was going to document this entire thing. And so for W.T. Stead, I have John Goodman. Oh, my goodness. Oh, man. This is, see, I'm going to walk away from this conversation mad that I'm not getting to see these movies. <laughs> could be, could like, be. Now that That's the concept so of, of John Goodman as W.T. Stead is in my head, I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight, you know? Just like this big, braggadocious swagger. Yeah. He puts his weight behind everything. He doesn't back down from a fight. Uh that's that is my, in my opinion that is John Goodman at his best, and that's that's where that's W. T. Stead is. So and that's perfect there. because W. T. Stead is like uh, bombastic. Mm -hmm. He's he's not unlike John Goodman's character in uh, The Big Lebowski. The Big Lebowski, yeah. or even when he plays yeah. the the one-eyed Cyclops guy in Oh yeah, yeah. Oh brother, where art thou? Like, I could see W.T. Stead, if he were bowling, being like, over the line, market zero, you know. Yep. Except he, he would publish that in, like, a muckraking newspaper, but still. Right, of course. Um, Same energy. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, the other main player is Rebecca Jarrett, and Rebecca Jarrett was the reformed oh, yeah, yeah. brothel owner who helped, oh, um, helped expose this. Absolutely a Coen Brothers character. Francis yes. McDormand. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> so those, those are my core three for this one. Francis yeah. McDormand, John Goodman, and George Clooney. Um, and then we don't really know. So, so what happened in the Maiden Tribute is they go through this process of, of smuggling this girl uh, across national lines into France to prove, just to prove how easy this was. And then they, they published their findings. Um, but along the way, some, some people got a hold of the parents of the child and convince them to go after the Salvation Army and, and press charges. Um, and so 
I need some smug, underhanded bad guys in yeah. this. And mm -hmm. I'm going with Bruce Campbell and Steven Root. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Steven Root's probably my favorite character actor ever. So he has to be in this. Is, is Steven Root like the lawyer or is he the, the father of the child that was sold? Uh, I, I would, it's either one. I just want, I just needed two smarmy bad guys. Uh, yeah. I figured I was kind of basing them on how in 101 Dalmatians, Horace and Jasper show up together. And that's kind of how I envisioned these two guys. Height differences in everything, showing yeah. up at the door and being like, we have a proposition. So I have them. And then I just have some general uh, other Salvation Army characters who I thought be cast, maybe not directly, not major parts in the movie, but going along with our thread here. Samuel Logan Brengel, Josh Brolin. <laughs> Evangeline Booth would be played by Holly Hunter. Oh, yeah. Uh, like young Holly mm -hmm. Hunter would be great as young Evangeline Booth. Totally right. Um, Joe the Turk. John Turturro. I mean, that one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that writes just, itself. Yeah, yeah. Just picturing John Turturro with a fez on yeah. his head and a and giant a Jesus, and a giant Jesus saves rubber stamp. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is is fantastic. George Scott Railton, uh, Steve Buscemi. Oh my goodness. <laughs> See, that's interesting. See, when when Dave said that George Scott Railton would be Tom Hardy, I was interested because the pictures of George Scott Railton, he looks more reedy. You know, he, he looks, looks like more Steve Steve Buscemi yeah, type. He looks more like yeah. Buscemi. He's like kind of a, a kind of almost a rail thin looking guy with like a kind of a slightly bulbous head. Right. So Steve Buscemi. Yeah. So Steve Buscemi. Yeah. Steve Buscemi. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, William Booth, Jeff Bridges. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, and then I had some, if we had some other characters we needed, uh, we've still got Tilda Swinton and Scarlett Johansson uh, that we could uh, yeah. use. I could, I pictured Tilda Swinton could play the mother of the child uh, in a tough spot and oh, yeah. felt like she could, uh, if she could make a quick buck or something, uh, could, could do that. Jeff Bridges as William Booth is incredible. Um, yeah. <laughs> just because he, he wears a huge beard very well. He does. Yes, he does. And he can be very intimidating in a quiet way. Dave and I went to see tr the True Grit remake together a yeah. number of years ago. And uh, Jeff Bridges has a pretty pretty solid beard in that one, uh, from what I mm -hmm. remember. So. Yeah, I, I could just see him, like, slowly walking up on stage with, like, throngs of people cheering, you know? Wearing, yeah. a, wearing a Guernsey. Yeah, or a like burgundy a full, Guernsey with a gold crest, black uniform trench coat. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's uh, that's what I have for my Coen Brothers bleak comedy on the the Maiden tribute. I would say tying the Coen Brothers in with Maiden tribute was a masterstroke because that does. I had never thought of this before, but yeah. that particular yeah. episode is a Coen Brothers movie, basically. Yeah. And uh, two of the three of the main characters did go to jail. Yeah, it's true. Um, so it's and can you imagine? I mean, that scandal happens today. You know, the the Salvation Army chief of staff. Yeah. Just imagine Lyndon Buckingham uh, <laughs> being involved in a child kidnapping expose ring. Like, I mean, yeah. And there's there's this Ooh. weird detail in it. I don't think anything untoward happened other than the abduction. <laughs> but W. T. Stead like 
went into the room with the girl to prove like to go through every right. step of the process to like yeah yeah that it could be done they didn't cut any corners yeah um other than actually doing despicable things but they did not cut corners in the process so yeah but from what i've read wt said like literally like drank some whiskey to like steal his nerves and then went in and just like sat in the room with the girl for a little while and then left i'm just picturing how john goodman would play that scene and like the hyping himself up you know like in a different room yeah. beforehand and stuff like that. <laughs> that'd be so intense and uncomfortable i'm imagining it as sully from monsters inc yeah. now <laughs> yes yeah yeah all right, let's uh, let's hear this this last All right, Nielsen, Nielsen. Okay, so this is just a throwaway, just this first one. But you guys probably are aware, just through our friendship, that I've slowly developed a habit of of constantly thinking of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead based premises. Yes. Like whenever I I love a piece of media, I always want to see the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yes to that thing's yeah. Hamlet. You want, you, want to see, you want to see the side story fleshed out. Exactly. And I love the concept of like someone going about their own little world and then this much bigger thing that everyone's more familiar with just kind of glancingly interacts with it. Yeah, so, that's, that's a great premise. So again, this is not my whole premise, but that was just one concept I have was what if you just tell the story of the Salvation Army's founding from the perspective of like, the barkeeper at the blind beggar or something like that, where it's just okay. this random characters walking in. I then realized that's basically Skeleton Army. That is Skeleton. Army. I was going to say, <laughs> so, that, that has been done. It has been done, so, but by all means, please cast it. Yeah, so uh, I never thought of Skeleton Army as a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead story, but uh, now I like it even more. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I... At first, I just thought, okay, who's a director with like a highly recognizable, distinctive style? I think Tim Burton is one where it's it's over the course of a thirty-year career, it's become just absolutely cliche. Like mm -hmm. the Tim Burton version of anything, you you basically just say those words and you can immediately imagine. Everybody it. gets the same mental image. Yeah. Yes. So for this one, I don't have a full cast, but I almost just have like a poster. Um, I'm picturing a 1929 scenario, like, like Dave described. Mm -hmm. um, from what I understand, Bramwell's wife, Florence Soper Booth, who was also involved in the Maiden Tribute episode, was she actually was, if anything, the Machiavellian player in the 1929 storyline. Because she was kind of propping up Bramwell when he was clearly in decline and should have stepped down and she was like highly from what i understand highly protective of him keeping you know the role of general um so it's kind of sad in a way because she was quite a cool person as a young woman that um was you know really involved at the start of things with the early salvation army but kind of a, a sad last chapter that she really was kind of using her husband to cling to power right up to the end there. Um, but I'm thinking Florence Soper Booth played by Helena Bonham Carter in this <laughs> Tim Burton version uh, with absolutely garish mascara, just like dark yes. rings, you know. 
Certainly um, playing up the grieving wife, you know, publicly, yeah. you know, the public yes. persona, a very different one than what when she's scheming yeah. behind. I put scheming in quotes if we don't load the video of this up. Uh, scheming <laughs> behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like she, first of all, it's a Tim Burton movie. So latter half of Tim Burton's career, she's just like a given. But also, I actually feel like she'd be a good fit for that part. Then Bramwell himself, in his later years in particular, in contrast to William Booth's kind of wiry, pointy frame, Bramwell has kind of a softness to him. His overall like head shape and body profile is mm -hmm. a little bit kind of rotund and gentle. It's the Mumford influence. <laughs> the Mumford side coming up. I'm, I'm picturing Stephen Fry as uh, Grandma Booth. <laughs> I, I think the only Tim Burton connection with Stephen Fry is the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland. I don't even care if there's a connection. I just love the idea of Stephen Fry as Bramwell Booth. <laughs> and this is a good one because obviously these are both Brits, so they would fit right into the role. Yes. Um, I'm not sure where George Scott Railton was at the time of 1929, but I think he actually I think he died. might have been dead. He, he died like around. Yeah, the he was more, he was more of a contemporary of William than he was Bramwell. Yeah. So, so I'm picturing there would be flashback sequences because I want to sweep in the early more like 18. I feel like you have to because if you're showing yeah. if you're showing uh, oh, the death of if you're showing the death of Bramwell, you have to show yeah. the life of Bramwell. You know what I mean? And, and how yeah. he got to Person where he was. A and, lot. Yeah. yeah. So I'm picturing like a wan, pallid, ghostly pale, drawn, stricken looking Johnny Depp as young George Scott Railton in flashback sequences. Okay. Just with like a high <laughs> yeah. collar that's like a little too tight and just already yes. looks cadaverous, you know? <laughs> um, Again, Tim Burton. Yeah. And then... I, I'm thinking in the kind of like uh, morality play of Bramwell's sort of fall from grace or whatever, we get like a black and white stop motion animated dream sequence of William Booth <laughs> appearing. And he's like a little bit skeletal. <laughs> um, and he is voiced by Michael Keaton. <laughs> Uh, I mean, he's been Batman, and yeah. he's been, he's, I mean, Michael Keaton is the voice of the Ken doll in Toy Story 3. Uh, so and, yeah, that, that, I mean, what can't he do? Well, and within Tim Burton's Irv, he's Batman and he's Beetlejuice. So right. you could go with kind of a Beetlejuice energy. I don't think William Booth is that yeah. manic, but. So I then. Mean, if we're talking about your dream sequence, so maybe not. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I would cross between Beetlejuice and Nightmare Before Christmas, kind of William Booth dream sequence. Who did the voice of Jack Skellington? I don't know. And that, that's a weird one because it wasn't actually directed by Tim Burton. It was like his idea. It was like story by Tim Burton, but it's a different director or something. I feel like in, a, in another way, it was directed by Tim Burton. Exactly. It, like spiritually. Like what epitomizes Tim Burton's aesthetic more than that movie, and yet it's not directed by him. Yeah, it's directed by Henry Selleck. Yeah. And uh, Jack Skellington's voice is Chris Sarandon. Oh, wow. Okay. Prince who, if I'm not mistaken is the six-fingered man no he's prince no Humperdinck. he's humperdink yeah. he's humperdink yeah 
Susan Sarandon's first husband, I think. She kept the name. Yeah. I yeah, Humperdinck. Th- I knew I it was one I thought he two. was her brother, but I think I'm right about that, that, uh, that she just kept the name. But anyways. So then I'm thinking, okay, who's another director with an instantly recognizable style? Quentin Tarantino. We were talking about this over text message. I do love Quentin Tarantino. So I want to fuse uh, early salvationism with Pulp Fiction. So I'm picturing <laughs> we just open with a long extended opening credits title sequence where the text fills up like the whole screen and it's like giant dark red gothic letters like from a late 19th century carnival poster like the hallelujah lassies poster the soundtrack is the call of the righteous by leslie condom and then about a minute into that there's a record scratch and it goes to brick house by the commodores and there's like a whole kind of funk boogie sequence that's definitely pulp yeah We open on a close-up shot of Tim Roth, possibly as Mad Mutt, maybe, my my ancestor, my great-great-grandfather, just describing his plan to uh, hold an open-air meeting. And it's kind of like the diner scene from Pulp Fiction, but he's like... It's extremely Pulp Fiction. He's like, one minute, they're eating a Denver omelet. The next, you're blowing a trombone in the face, you know, explaining yourself. (laughs) In terms of the, the 1929 storyline, this is where I'm wondering about uh, Edward Higgins as kind of a villainous figure from Bramwell's perspective. Uh, I actually wondered about maybe Christoph Waltz as Edward Higgins, as this kind of like usurper, mm-hmm. you know, who's... If you're, playing him, if you're playing him as a usurper, Christoph Waltz is a good That's, choice. Yeah. I just didn't know where to go with Edward Higgins. Like he just seems, and maybe that's kind of the point is he was like the safe choice. Like the, he was. I kind of like the idea of playing him as like somebody like totally boring. Yeah. And like no personality at all. Mm -hmm. And then Florence Booth is like, really? This guy? Really? And Florence Booth is, is more of the uh, manipulative one. Right. So I'm thinking, you guys know the actor Michael Madsen? He's been in a yeah. bunch of bunch yeah. of Tarantino movies. Reservoir Dogs, see, Hateful Eight. Yeah. I could see him as Bramwell. Again, not picking on Bramwell, but he kind of has that, that general softness, and especially in older age, yeah. more, a sense of being slightly broken down as a person. Maybe slightly broken down, but also kind of like swashbuckling in a way. Uh Madsen has uh, an affect to him that is very assured, very like that whole dance scene in in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's just there's just something about that. Like, I can I can totally see Bramwell. I see I can see that that persona kind of pulling uh, yeah. pulling Bramwell along. Yeah, that would be kind of a quiet Bramwell, but who has like a darkness to him. Um, He's seen stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's been around the block a couple of times. So I wanted to get an, a different character involved in this story who I have no idea if she actually had any role in 1929. But William and Captain Bruce's uh, daughter, Kate, who I think might have been their youngest daughter, 
she founded the Salvation Army in France. The Marechal. The Marechal. Just an interesting figure. Um, kind of high-spirited, went off to plant the army in a foreign country. In a Tarantino universe, I'm thinking Uma Thurman in that role, like <laughs> younger Uma Thurman. I like it. I'm like for that. Kind of in Kill Bill mode of just, just like a black and white shot of Kate Booth driving across the English Channel, you know, like on her way to France. Yeah. And then this one is, this hit me like late in the process, but um, have you guys ever seen Jackie Brown by Quentin Tarantino? I think that's one of the two that I haven't seen. I've heard you talk about it a lot. Yeah. It's a lesser known Tarantino, it's one of those movies that was like greeted with disappointment when it came out, but has grown in stature since then. Kind of a cult movie. So basically what Cats is going to do. <laughs> What's, yes, what some people, I'm trying to think because there's tons of movies like that where, especially like follow-ups to huge hits where a director, it, yeah. With his continued success, it's, it's like earned its place as an installment in his yes. canon. Whereas I, like at the time it was disappointing, but now it's like, yeah, it fits with his overall yeah. genre. But yeah, exactly. It was like his follow-up to Pulp Fiction, which was like much hyped. Right. And it, it kind of disappointed from that perspective. Isn't that the movie with the, the Sam Jackson AK-47 quote? Yes. There's an entire okay. Samuel Jackson monologue about machine guns. Yeah. <laughs> but... um. I'm pulling one element from that movie, which is Robert De Niro as William Booth in, in flashbacks <laughs> from 1929. And I, okay. I'm bold. <laughs> I, you don't really think of De Niro as like a classic Quentin Tarantino actor. Um, he has an interesting supporting role in that movie. He has, De Niro has like a lot of face and a very prominent nose, which William Booth did too. So That fits. I feel and like gravitas, tons add, of gravitas. Yeah, you add the huge beard and he would look like him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He would have a similar profile. Very, very much so. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So the last one I did is yet another director who has kind of like a a, a style that's easy to imitate, and that is Wes Anderson. So it. Even doing like Wes Anderson's version of blank is almost a cliche at this point because it's pretty easy to just slot, you know, something else into. Right. Like stuff. you can, you can immediately guess uh, what that's going to look like. Yeah. Uh, but I do, I do get the sense, at least now that he's got a couple of other movies out, um, like uh, Isle of Dogs was a little different for him. Yeah. Um, I do get the sense that while the, the color palette and the tone of the movie uh, are often very similar. The characters themselves are, like he doesn't repeat characters very much. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like, I actually like him a lot as a director. I, I People kind of rag on him because his style is like a little cute, you know? Or maybe a lot cute. But like, yeah, great actors love working with him. Yes like Bill Murray, Ray Fiennes, you know, Jeff Goldblum, like all these, uh, you know, Gene Hackman, like all these highly respected actors seem to want to work with them. So. Luke Wilson. <laughs> of course, Luke Wilson. Yeah. You know, 
Pick best of the best. <laughs> Sorry, right. Luke. J- Jason Schwartzman, like four times. Yeah. So uh, I, I was just kind of picking the low-hanging fruit immediately, which is just Jason Schwartzman as George Scott Railton. Okay. A little mousy. I like it. Uh, Adrian Brody as Joe the Turk kind of lean into Adrian Brody's just ind- indefinite exoticism mm-hmm. where it's like, what, what is he exactly? Right. I know Joseph Turk was like Armenian, so he's not even Turkish. So, But Adrian Brody as well is one of those actors who gets really into the character. Yes. Uh, like he's famous would, for it. You know what I mean? That would be so entertaining. Yeah. So, so Adrian Brody as, as Joe the Turk, who, listen, we revere him nowadays. Like, we look back and talk about, like, how great Joe the Turk was and how fearless. Joe the Turk, like, those characters are never as well-liked in their time as they are down the road. Yeah. Uh, like, there were a number of people, a number of Salvationists who, who said, like, it's, it's not really good that a Salvation Army person keeps getting arrested. That's not, that's not like, a good thing. Yeah. Um, and now we're, we brag about it. It's just interesting how things change. So Adrian Brody, mm-hmm. you know, uh, kind of a polarizing actor, I think. I think playing Joe at the Turk, I think he would do it in a, in a fantastic way. Um, you, I think you could play it so that you, you hate the character so much. Yeah. And then by the end of the movie, you realize like, okay, I get what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Wes Anderson would have fun with the visual aesthetic of the early army where everyone's in these like dark navy blue uniforms and then there's just one guy in like rainbow pants and a fez just, yeah. <laughs> just huge, very well understand it's a huge umbrella just what is this guy doing in this crowd of uniformed military yeah, i would almost say if you could focus wes anderson on the joe the turk story (laughs) then then that's that's that would be perfect and you sort of like show how joe the turk was out of place among the other ray fines stuffy brit types um of the you know like i feel like is willem dafoe has he been in more than one wes anderson movie because i I feel like one but i feel like willem dafoe is like would be like perfect for like an early salvation army colonel who is fed up with joe the turk's antics and and whatnot that just i don't know it's uh, that just seems like it makes too much sense it feels right although i almost would be inclined to go broader and just have willem dafoe as like the skeleton army yeah sure as, like, i mean that works too. yeah yeah the entire army just like cgi just like all... 100 <laughs> Yeah, it's like Hugo Weaving in The Matrix Reloaded. Just like yes. hundreds of Willem Dafoe's. <laughs> just like descending and throwing yeah. bricks. Yeah. So a couple stylistic elements that I think Wes Anderson would bring to it. Like I said, I think he would really go to town on those early uniforms. Mm-hmm. Um, probably redesign them so they have really prominent double rows of brass buttons in the front. Sort of like the bellhop uniforms in Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. all the uniform caps would have chin straps so they're a little cute yes, again yeah. again yep. kind of like a bellhop um, I think he would do an intro where every major character is introduced with a little title card showing their name and rank and their current <laughs> appointment Tarantino would do that too so yeah I could, I could just picture the Tarantino Wes Anderson would do that. like 
where it's just like, you know, Bremwell Booth, chief of the staff. And it's like a slow-mo shot of him, like, you know, yeah. walking <laughs> into the room or whatever. With, with Tarantino, it would be like bullet shots. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And everything staff. would freeze for a second. Yeah. So then I was picturing, what would Wes Anderson do with the 1929 High Council? I think we would get a lot of like very symmetrical shots of the entire High Council facing the camera, like the Last Supper <laughs> painting, you know? What if you did it, what if you did the High Council mockumentary style? Where it cuts to oh, the like, oh God. <laughs> And it cuts to a bunch of commissioners who are like, not really sure that like, I don't know what we're doing here. Yeah. This doesn't see, and then, and then Brangle's like, yo, I just talked to Bramwell and that dude is gone. <laughs> yeah, I could see an office style take on the high yeah. council. Yeah. But that's actually what I was thinking is, this is where I feel like uh, Wes Anderson would get Jeff Goldblum in. You'd have just, a, a single scene where like Jeff Goldblum raises his hand and is like, um, I, I'm not entirely sure that the general is fit to continue. Have we, you know, kind of. Yeah. The whole thing, the whole yes. thing begins with Jeff Goldblum saying, uh, can, can, can we just circle back to the one you said, <laughs> yeah. when you said deteriorating yeah, mentally? Yeah. What, what, yeah, what, yeah. What, what does that mean? What does that mean exactly? And I, then that's, that's what seeing... snowballs the whole thing. I'm kind of seeing Jeff Goldblum as like a, a non-salvationist lawyer who comes in to like kind of clarify the deed poll. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And like, and ask that question as an outsider and everyone just kind of goes like, yes. Yeah. He would be amazing as the one normal guy in a room full of like diehard salvationists. Just, yes. just like a refined intellectual London lawyer, you know? Like, he works as the person who's like, wait a second. And it's it's interesting because he's still weird and quirky. Yeah. And his, like, even the way he talks is, like, this oddly kind of jazzy rhythm that's hard to imitate. But yet you, you buy him as, like, someone who's more grounded than the other people mm -hmm. present, you know? Agreed. And I think you know, we're all huge Goldblum. I mean, how excited were we when we found out Jeff Goldblum was going to be in Thor Ragnarok? Extremely. Like I, very, I remember. I remember where I was when I got that news. Uh, <laughs> That's like the JFK assassination, but in yeah. a good way for our. Right, thing. right. So I was at the DC's cottage at Camp Tecumseh when I found out that Jeff Goldblum was going to be in the third Thor movie in an undisclosed role at that point, and I was like, I don't even care what role he's in. He could be Thor. I'm, I'm up for it. Like, let's do this. <laughs> So I'm just going to run through a couple more Wes Anderson castings. Do it. So. Lightning round style. I, I'm thinking for Bramwell Booth, every Wes Anderson movie pretty much has Bill Murray in it. Even if it's okay. just a small role. Bill Murray as like aged Bramwell Booth would be, I think, a really good fit. Obviously, it would bring a comic side to it. Uh, particularly his his comedy when he is reflecting on his life yes. in the same way that Bill Murray has a way of reflecting on the on the past and adding some very humorous commentary to it as he does it. I could see Bill Murray like sitting in his general's regalia, like kind of crumpled in a hotel room, just like hunched over, just like what's become of me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or then when, when people in the high council are like dragging him and questioning his fitness, 
Do you do that Bill Murray thing where he just like looks up at the sky and is just like, God, why are you testing me? Yes. Yeah. I would say, uh, even though we're mixing and matching the ages here, you could get a flashback sequence with Ray Fiennes as a fiendishly intense William Booth. Mm-hmm. I actually am that really excited. Awesome. Ray Fiennes has that, again, that wiry, angular quality. I, yeah. I actually think he would fit in that role very, very well. I, he's someone who's believable as like the charismatic catalyst for like a global movement. You know? Absolutely. And, yeah. and someone, in, a, in the context of a flashback, someone that Graham Well is always trying to live up to, you know, mm-hmm. his, his legacy. And then last one, I'm borrowing this from, I think, Royal Tenenbaums and um, Life Aquatic. But I, I would cast as Evangeline Booth, Angelica Houston, which I'm actually very excited mm-hmm. about. But mm-hmm. I'm just picturing wow. like the, the sister coming in from back from America, who's like, what are you doing to my brother? But maybe also angling for the general herself, you know? Yeah. Um, and Evangeline Booth is just kind of interesting because I feel like when you see pictures of her, you just get the sense that she's like such a performer and knows exactly yeah. what she's doing. And uh, I, I could see Angelica Houston capturing that, you know. So those are my uh, my I love random it. jottings. I very much appreciated that. That was fantastic. That was good. I gotta, I gotta head out pretty soon, but that was amazing. We, we did what we came here to do. Yes, we did. We did. Uh, I would, I would listen to that again. Well, if you're still listening, it was great having you join us. Thank uh, you, thank you, you, Scott and Evie, and pointedly not my mother. <laughs> <laughs> there's no way, there's no way my mom is going to listen to this podcast. Yeah. I don't even, I might be able to get Jesse to listen to it. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see. That was what was striking me, though, about our first batch of podcasts was the the number of people that were, like, extremely close to me who still couldn't be bothered to listen to it. (laughs) It was like... Yeah. (coughs) Uh, Anyway, uh, so thanks for having us. That's all we've got for today. And uh, have a good night, everyone. Hopefully we'll catch you again soon.